2: This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hello, this is Bruce Daisley. You can catch up with all the previous episodes on our website, which is Eat Sleep Work eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. There's some good episodes that have happened recently. If you didn't check out the episode with Cal Newport, I think that was a fantastic one on deep work. A lot of people love the Bianca Ingalls story about really sort of designing the workplaces for our culture. And obviously the Dan Cable episode about being alive at work is just this incredible preview of his book that's coming out at the start of next year. So some really good episodes that have happened in the in the last few weeks. I saw an interesting article this week which was suggesting that German academics have been warned about Chinese spies following them on LinkedIn and it did make me reflect on my own open LinkedIn policy. I think I've, I've described, probably unfairly, I've used the word randos to describe some of the people who've connected to me on LinkedIn and I have solicited that but sometimes I had a, a big Flurry of people joining me from the Gambia a couple of weeks ago, and while shout out to my Gambian crew, uh, part of me did wonder if I was going to get accosted with money-making schemes that maybe might compromise my LinkedIn integrity. Certainly, the value of my professional network is so valued to me that I would hate to do anything that undermined me in the eyes of the community. I'm not sure how your own. End of years going. I've got the uh, I've got a trip to the darts arranged on Sunday. It's not just all culture and work. I'm going. Uh, me and I suppose these days you'd describe them as your crew. Me and my crew are going as the stars of Mario Kart. I'm actually going as Wario. I thought even though I'm the organizer of it, it would be the height of arrogant vanity to ask to be Mario myself. So I am going as as Wario. But uh, look out for us if you're at the darts at uh, Ali Pali on Sunday. Right then. So, with the end of term... F- there's uh, a few different changes here. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be sort of dropping a, a series of short episodes, which are sort of 10 15 minute things that might fall into your feed that are just very simple, one off ideas about how to improve your work. People I've interviewed in the course of the last year that probably wouldn't make a, a full episode, but are fascinating enough to give you sort of a, a small bit of insight and small bit of knowledge. And then uh, there's an end of year review, and that's myself and Andre Spicer. Andre's had a series of, well, fantastic reviewed books out this year he had Business Bullshit, which you might have seen uh, featured in The Guardian, in The Telegraph. Also, he's had a, a book called A Year of Self-Improvement. And uh, I'll be chatting to Andre. You'll remember him from, I think, episode nine. Myself and Andre will be discussing the Geddon, the BBC Pay Gap. We'll be discussing uh, just really uh, probably some of the fallout of the Harvey Weinstein episode and whether that's coming to an office near you. So a bit of a year-end review coming up. So there's a few things that should be dropping into your feed. And if you subscribe to Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat you'll you'll receive those on, on your podcast app. Today's episode is an in-depth discussion with Richard Reed, founder of Innocent Smoothies. Now, British, French, German people will know the story of Innocent. It's Britain's number one juice brand. We're actually so familiar with the company, it accounts for half of the fruit smoothie market in the UK. We forget what an unlikely success story was. It wasn't the first smoothie to launch in the UK, that was P&J Smoothies. And uh, well done if you remember that one. But Innocent had very few resources, no distribution, small investment and almost nothing to call upon in their Battle against the big boys. One of their secret weapons was they said their culture helped define their success, and that for me meant that it would be a fascinating place to go and to talk to Richard. Now Richard uh, now runs an investment project called Jam Jar Investments, and so he's uh, he sold the the business to Coca-Cola. But I was interested in how culture really had been their driving force. One of the other things that Innocent was credited with was the invention of whackaging You know this sort of sometimes overly matey overly familiar packaging that comes on some of the products we buy next time you're on a virgin train and it it tells you not to flush your boyfriend's jumper down the toilet that's whackaging and you can thank Richard for that so uh we we have a very in-depth discussion about how they built the culture of Innocent, actually how it wasn't just all nicey-nicey, what the company stood for. At the end, we give a slightly abbreviated shout-out to a brilliant new book he's uh, had out in the last couple of months, which is called If I Could Tell You Just One Thing, and that's a series of the most incredible people in the world and James Corden. And those people are giving their single piece of advice what they would advise anyone to to take on board the single piece of advice they would give. So uh, we talk about that briefly at the end, and I'll give a shout-out to it again. Here's Richard. Uh, we'll start with something really straightforward, which, which is how much did you consciously try to design a culture at Innocent? Or how much was it just trying to preserve something that had already existed? Now,
1: that is a tricky one. Because now, with hindsight and experience, capturing and enhancing a culture is something that we both see as massively valuable, and something that we hugely advocate for any business that we invest in. Did we know it intellectually in advance when we started Innocent? No, not really. It came from the simple reality of this was a business set up by three friends. But we had a mindset of, and why should we pollute that or water that down just because we're setting up a business? We saw it very much as we think there's an advantage for being a business that talks and acts in an extremely informal, natural, friendly manner, which in our case is entirely authentic because it's set up by some simple, natural, friendly mates. So it's quite hard to say, was it all orchestrated? No. Were we mindful of it as we went through? Yes. Do I have an even greater appreciation now we're at the end of it looking back? Absolutely.
2: When I look at what you tried to do, I guess it looks like, I mean, I read The Innocent Story, The Innocent Book that you put together, and it seems like a lot of cultures, you tried to commit to paper what was already happening. So you create five values, you talk about the importance of, of communication. Did you ever set about, sometimes when you look at Silicon Valley values, for example, that's where we normally see a lot of these things, they often sort of try to be a bit jarring and a bit controversial. How did you create those values, or was it just committing to paper what you were seeing around you?
1: Again, it's another really interesting question because actually I started out as a total cynic of the idea that there was going to be like corporate values. I almost thought with the antithesis of that, we're not going to have corporate mission statements and values because that's just the nonsense that big, old, stale companies appropriate. I thought we would just do it all naturally because we're three friends and to be honest it worked extremely well like that at first we went from three to seven to eleven to twenty no problemo the sense of mission to extent there was one and more importantly what you're talking about the values and the atmosphere of the company was just spread by osmosis by the way that we were because we're all sat in the same room and we're all talking to each other on a daily basis and we're all going to the same meetings because the company's so small everyone's involved in everything but when we got to sort of more than 20 people and then we weren't all in the same room and we weren't all going to all the same meetings. I started seeing it from 20 to 40 people. Hang on, there's people that aren't getting it. I thought, well, you can't have people not get the vibe. You know, the vibe's really important. But I realised then, well, you can't expect people to get things that they don't understand what it is. And so that's,
2: let's be specific. What does someone not getting it look like? That they might be a bit selfish.
1: Okay. They might be being a bit slightly dishonest. Right. We had this thing, right? Google have don't be evil. Our version of that was don't be lame. Lame is a little phrase that we use amongst as our group of friends. Don't be lame. Being lame is when you finish the toilet roll and you don't replace it for the next person. Being lame is when you have your coffee but you leave the Thirty cup in the sink rather than wash it yourself even though you know there's no office cleaner so in theory you were saying someone else should wash your cup for you so we had very on this policy of don't be lame but we needed to make sure that people understood it and bought into it so actually i remember when we got to 41 people that's when i decided we're going to write all this stuff down right but we're going to do it collectively as a community and so i got everyone in the business groups of eight spend a lunch time with me throwing a few free sandwiches and we would just talk through what the things that we stand for and stand against As a community, because that's what I'd read in a book that really opened my mind to it. It said a business is not a building or technology or bits of equipment. A business is a community of human beings. That's actually, if you're clear-sighted, look at what a business is. It is a group of human beings coming together to do something. And therefore... All human emotions, psychology, dynamics play out. And if you capture that and enhance it, you do well. And if you ignore it or you pollute it, you do badly. So we were very clear of we're a community. Communities work best when everyone contributes. And you have a shared set of how do we want to be, what are our behaviors as a community. And it was a crazy exercise because I got everyone to say everything that we stood for and stood against. We had over three thousand things on the list. We were against gun crime. <laughs> we were pro cheese. There was a lot of people that loved cheese in the company. So and it was great to get it all out and to get a sense of what we're all about now obviously we're not going to make that as our lead statement and although i have to say to this day the, the longest serving the most popular society in innocent is cheese club It's the most attended it happens once a month every month and at the end of the year there's a cheese off where every cheese that's been voted the cheese of the month competes to be cheese of the year at the end getting slightly off the track there we get back to five things that we thought would guide our behaviors which is about being natural talk natural, act natural, make only natural products and natural ingredients. So it had both a very sort of logic interpretation for the nature of the products, but also acting naturally and talking naturally was a really good sort of guideline to just the day-to-day behaviours. Entrepreneurial. We started from a market stall. We continued to keep that entrepreneurial flame alive, take risks. We had this little catchphrase, which you're 70% sure, then go for it. And that really helped people sort of understand decision-making and that you shouldn't make reckless decisions, but you shouldn't also get lost in research and never pull up an natural give it a go so we said if you're 70% sure go for it that was part of being entrepreneurial it was about being responsible we wanted to make products that were healthy that was sustainably sourced it was about being commercial because actually you put those first three together starting to sound a bit like a hippie commune so the commercial thing was we're a business we need to grow we need to chase sales we need to make money because that's what creates the opportunity and fifthly it was about being generous which was about generous with each other with our time with feedback but also making sure that we shared the value that was created so every employee became a shareholder and we give 10% of our profits to charity so actually it wasn't some just sort of generic corporate exercise it really did codify the DNA of the business and it became I think one of our greatest contributors to the long-term success that we understood this is what we were for this is what we wanted of our people it helped on recruitment because people that were interested in these things would come and people that weren't wouldn't so actually we found that the culture got stronger and stronger and stronger and we were very we took it very seriously we recruited against the values rewarded against the values we retained people against the values we promoted people against the values equally importantly we fired people if they didn't exhibit and inhabit the values the biggest rewards both in terms of promotions, in terms of equity, in terms of pay rises, went to the people that was seen as being the greatest embodiments of the values of the business, and the people that went off values were the people that were asked to leave the business. So we really, really put proper teeth to it.
2: Right, because that's the bit I guess that's the most interesting, because a set of benign adjectives sometimes can seem it's like what good is this? Yep. And I saw you talking somewhere else about you know you were very strict on performance management, you were very strict on on managing performance. Can you? Talk- talk? Talk about that side of it because I think that's where critically culture comes into its own, doesn't it? You know, when it's not just this lovely, kind supportive environment but it's also an accountable environment as well
1: yes I think these days some people when they're talking about culture they hear culture they think oh that's about getting a table tennis table for the office exactly oh god no no. culture is really about how you get people to be sort of spiritually mentally physically totally engaged with the the organisation and the community within it I actually think that starts with the values firstly so find people that chime individually themselves with the values of the organisation secondly to your point it's then incredibly Incredibly important to give those people the best opportunity to be excellent at their job and to be really successful. The precursor to being successful and being really good at your job is understanding exactly what it is you're supposed to be delivering to be successful. So Innocent had this thing that every single person in the business had five objectives. Those five objectives would be unique to them over the next six months, and each of those five objectives, the things that they had to deliver, would align directly to one or two or three or four or five of the company's objectives. So we had this thing that involved the whole organization called the Rule of Five. Five objectives for the business, five objectives for the individuals. That meant that everyone knew exactly what they personally were supposed to deliver to be successful and how in doing so it helps deliver the objectives of the organisation. And how often
2: were they updated? Was that was that like an annual thing, a quarterly thing, a weekly thing? Twice a year.
1: Okay. So you
2: would have your principal
1: objective setting in January for the forthcoming year and then there would be a refresh and an assessment against them in the June and you would be then given as part of the rule of five a score of one through to five depending on how you're doing in delivering your objectives and how how well you're doing in embodying the values of the business five was you're an absolute superstar one was you need to look for a different job and not many people got ones but we'd always make sure some were and then two was you're falling short of what's expected of you but we believe in you and we're going to invest in extra time and management to get you up to a three because three means you're good and you're delivering what's needed four is your excellent five is you know you're just in the stratosphere but having the absolute transparent clarity of what am I supposed to do and how well am I doing it and how does that contribute to the bigger picture that was far and away the most important bit of creating a high performance high engagement culture it wasn't all the lovely fun stuff that we did the lovely fun stuff can actually take away the energy and the good bit of the culture if you're not doing the really important stuff well so
2: it's, the, it's that ultimately it's the tough edge it's the tough underbelly that really makes the good side of the culture positive for everyone else right it's yes but I mean I just
1: I, I would be careful about to say it's the tough underbelly okay we're dealing with human beings here right what do we all want well we we all want to get on in We all aspire to grow, to do better, to achieve more and a good organization should be 100% inc- complicit in helping you achieve that. There's no point being doe-eyed about it. You do want to, throughout your career, be able to earn more, to take on more responsibility, to have greater opportunities, and that starts with performance management. Now, it has to be actually led by the individual. If the individual's not engaged in their own improvements, then they're a lost cause, but the organization has to create a culture where it's just absolutely, vividly part of what we care about and that was going back to the values as I said we had five ones about being generous and to make sure these weren't generic words underneath each of those headline words we had three specific examples of the behaviours that we okay. made by being generous and generous first one was being with feedback and it said very specifically always making sure people know when they've done something well and more importantly letting them know when they've fallen short because that's an act of generosity in Britain especially we tend not like to give the negative feedback because we feel a bit awkward so we let it pass so we're putting our own Comfort before someone's ability to improve—that's not generous. That's actually selfish. So it was a constant education of people to understand that by taking the time out to let someone know where well, there was a gap between what was expected and what they delivered, you're helping them do better next time. And so the whole organisation was massively engaged in how can we help each other raise our game. Even the training—all the training was done in house, innocent. We had this thing that I'd learned from how doctors are taught in medical school—that you watch one, do one, teach one. In terms of any some of the most basic. Things the first time you inject someone through to like you know doing a brain operation watch one do one teach one so we had this spirit what does that mean so watch one do Do one one, teach one i.e If you're sat in a training course, say on, I don't know, presentation skills, knowing in the next three months you're going to have to be the person teaching the course. God, did you pay more attention. Right. So every course at Innocent was taught by people at Innocent, created by people at Innocent. Because there's always someone who was brilliant at project management. So codify it, they teach it. Then the people that are taught go on to teach it. It was amazing. It took a bit of Mm. work to get it up and running. But otherwise, you're paying trainers to come in, teach, and then leave. Crazy. So all these things, it was all this massively positive endeavour to help people be more and more successful but in line with the values of the business and one of them is like success together rather than the expense
2: of the other. So one of the things I guess that underpins all of that is recruitment right This sort of like this hidden part of culture everyone thinks culture is what happens during the day and I guess there's a big part of it which is getting the right person in there who's not being lame or who or maybe can be Trained not to be lame.
1: Well, you go, in my opinion, straight to the absolute heart of the bullseye. It is the single most important decision ever made as a business leader who you recruit into your company. Obviously, I mean that in terms of culture, but I mean, generally, it is the single most important determinant of your performance, your culture, Everything comes from who you recruit. You can never change the values of an individual, and nor should you. That's some sort of weird sort of psychops. Individuals have a code of behaviour that's inherent with them, and so sort of, I guess to do with their combination of their genes and their childhood and their peer group. Your job is to find the ones that chime with what you're about, and not try and shoehorn someone in that isn't. So yeah, I always said it. It was the single most important business decision, much more than how you're going to raise the funds or which products you're going to launch. It's like who are you getting to join your business? Because my Your business is a community of human beings. So everything begins to go wrong,
2: or hopefully everything begins to go right with the quality of your recruitment. So tell me this, so I saw you talk about a couple of things, I'm just going to sort of push you to get, to get a sense of them. So I saw you said that you had something called, it might be the lift test or the... Van test. The van test, right? So the idea that if you couldn't stand being in a van for three hours with someone, yeah. don't hire them. And I get it, and you also do something which has been very popular, or did something that was very popular, which was give a lump sum of money to people who recommend a friend. Proper now, money as well. So those things, I think... Think both probably through a prism of 2017 2018 people say leads to cultural homogeneity mm. that you basically end up with this legion of people who've got degrees from the same places or look the same with the view that those things now probably we need to try and think of a bit more diversity and mix would you adapt any of those things now do you, th- do you think the van test is, is still fair
1: yeah oh, totally because the van test is it just simply said this on the recruitment form for when you're interviewing someone would you want to be in a van with them for three hours now, why would you recruit someone that you wouldn't want to be in a van with them for three hours? I'm not saying, are you going to be like this? This is, by the way, it wasn't about trying to be everyone trying to be mates. It's just like, but did you as a human being like them? Did you respect them? I, if there's someone that you don't want to be in a van with for three hours, it's quite an interesting way of thinking about things. That's not about a lack of diversity. That's about a massive understanding humans for s- seeing through to their humanity. Actually, Innocent is a deliciously and very refreshingly diverse group of people. And the very fact that we were saying that we are values led and looking for people that committed to the mission as opposed to you just get a 2-1 from oxbridge it really helped bring people in one of our very best hires was a guy who was a snowboarding instructor that hadn't been in university don't get me wrong i'm not being disingenuous we of course loved people with good academics but i tell you this we had a way of scoring people of 12 points scoring a maximum of 12 points Three was about your academics in terms of universities. Three was about what you did in in terms of your experiences. Three was about what you had done in terms of your hobbies or outside interests. And three was what you had been doing at school. You you needed nine points to get an interview. You could not have gone to university, but what we'd be looking for is someone who had really nailed it in terms of contribution to their community, whatever that is, charity work, organising the football team, whatever it took. But we were always looking for signs of people that fundamentally came down to two human characteristics ambition i.e an ability to do things and try things and take things on and then in equal measure altruism a sense of togetherness doing it responsibly because we felt that they were you get those well balanced altruism and ambition it's like this two jet engines that propel you forward so fast if you're too ambitious and not altruistic enough you're going to be one of those people that is all about the take and for themselves if you're too ambitious sorry if you're too altruistic and not really sort of ambitious then you could end up just being a bit too sort of inward focused and forgetting the fact that it was a business here trying to create jobs and wealth. But together, and I would say that this was absolutely true of all the best performing people Innocent, they were both we got to win. We're going to win in a way we can be proud of. We're going to win together.
2: Okay, because you, I saw you said, there's a couple of things you said about recruitment, which was, I, I guess you said you get rid of snipers, so get rid of these sort of negative forces. in. And I was I was interested to explore that a bit more. And I saw you talk about you'd rather leave holes than have the wrong, per, wrong person in place. Now, both of those things, when you're like a rapidly growing business, things are going immensely well. It must feel like a big sacrifice to say, actually, that guy we're getting rid of him, that woman, we're not going to hire her. Does it feel like sacrifice at the time, or does it feel like the right thing to do? Well, look, firstly, I've got to say this, mate. It's
1: a lot easier when I'm writing my book after I've <laughs> left the company. And okay. so, and I, I've got a great talent at hypocrisy, so I'm not yeah, for yeah, one yeah. second saying that we kept up to those ideals the yeah. whole way through in fact it's because we didn't keep up to those ideals all the time but sometimes we did just go sod it we're so desperate even though we don't feel like they're the right person let's get him in anyway yeah. god did we always come to regret it yeah so we learnt as much through being burnt as getting it right yeah. there were times when as i said we, we made the wrong decision and you know you absolutely know internally, if you're listening to yourself, that I'm making this decision out of expediency, not because I really believe it's the right person. Always created six times more work than if you've just doubled down and just carried on recruiting for a little bit longer. And it's so easy for me to say, and I know it's so desperate, but we would communicate with people openly. Like, we know we're basically asking you to be doing two jobs. We know that's an unreasonable ask. So we're just acknowledging that we are asking you to do that and you are doing it and we're grateful for that. But we're insistent on getting only brilliant people so it's going to take us longer but we're going to go further when we get there there's another thing as well I resisted firing people for a long period of time as well because I thought it was sort of unethical of course you get to a certain level you go it's so unethical to keep people on when they're not right because you are actually chewing up their life and their time. If you're having conversations with them that they're not party to, about they're not good enough, and you're not happy with them, and you, but you're just sort of kicking them out to pasture, you're literally screwing with their lives. It's never really talked about, but I believe this. There's a massive spiritual dividend from firing people obviously, in brackets, if you do it in the right way, because you're letting someone get on with the rest of their life. And we had a rule, again, I'm not saying we always subscribe to it, but we got better at it. It It's like, you only ever have a conversation about someone as if they were in the room. And if you're saying things you're not prepared to say to them in the face, then you need to go and speak to them about it. And that was a really good, simple little management tool. Talk about people as if in the room. Ideally, have them in the room. But this idea you could sit and go, well, they're they're rubbish, aren't they? But God, you know, they're such a drongo. It's so easy to do, but it's toxic, it's poisonous. And most of all, it's irresponsible. And it came back to one of the values. The responsible thing to do if you're not feeling it for whatever reason. Because it's never about the individual. It's not about their character. It's not about their humanity. It's about their performance. They're probably not ideally suited to this. And there's something else out there that they would be suited to. So whenever we did actually fire someone. And of course, you do it in a really humane way. So people leave with their confidence intact and all the rest of it. But God, everyone benefited. I remember there's one person who was clearly that I brought in. A very senior person. I recruited them. Knowing that they weren't good, but I was so desperate. They came in, it was awful from start to finish. And then I did fire her, and people burst into tears. And I did it, and came and said thank you so much. And I thought, I've been put so much pressure. They've been under so much pressure. with someone, and to be fair to the person that was fired, they were having a miserable time as well. So yeah. sometimes you just have to be ruthless. You've got to be ruthless.
2: I guess that's two things, isn't it? Not only to the person is beneficial, but to everyone, like you say, there, the collective sense of relief when something that's so evidently wrong yeah.
1: is resolved. And also, don't do it to be a nice guy. If that doesn't appeal, yeah. do it for this. Right, the good people are going to leave if you keep the bad people. Someone's leaving. Good people don't stay working organisations with bad people. So either you get rid of the people that are underperforming keep the good people or you keep the underperformance because you're too chicken to
2: do something about it i promise this the good ones are going to leave tell me this so we've talked about the qualities that you want in a good person and that thing that you're hiring for so if you're then advising whether it's a someone at school or at college what are this, the things that you should tr- try and embody then is it, is it is or to it, make yourself employable yeah but i mean like you know because to some extent you're saying there and we're saying there that these desirable qualities in some people that you look for they sort of emanate a certain energy that you're like right okay that's what i want to hire so what are those
1: things ah well we have to be slightly careful about that because i think interviews are are completely flawed as a way of determining someone's ability to do the job or not. So what do you do instead? Basically, what you're hoping is they're going to be really good at the job. So what you, we always do is make sure they're given the opportunity to prove that they're really good at the job. Don't get me wrong, of course there is the interview stage, but once you're passed through that, then it's about actually, we would always give you the to-do list or the project you'd be starting on on your first day and just get a sense of how you approach, how you think about things. That was a much better test than sitting in interviews talking to people because the problem with interviews is people have got that sort of, Charisma, who are extroverts, they do really well in interviews. Mm. But you do not want a business just full of extroverts. Mm. I'm quite extrovert. I know how to speak publicly. It's amazing what you get away with if you've got that ability to sort of sound confident even when you're not. But it doesn't mean I'm the cleverest guy in the room actually a lot of the time the quieter ones are the ones that do better work. So you've got to make sure you're spotting those as you're going through the recruitment procedure. And it can't just be there for all about, hey, how good are you at getting people to like you when you sit in a room and talk to them? Give them the opportunity to show what they can do. I think that was really, really crucial. But in terms of how do you get the interview in the first place, then we would always, I would always spend more time looking at the bottom of the CV than at the top. Because I think you get a sense of someone's character what do they do with their time their actions show you their preferences it shows you their capabilities it shows you their interests it shows you the nature of the thing that they do and that's what you're trying to find out so that's what I say to my god children it's like do as much extracurricular stuff as possible weirdly we would also be massively pro someone who'd set up a business you know obviously the fact they're applying for a job means that business didn't work. Give me someone that's tried to set up a business and it hasn't worked out than someone that hasn't because it's showing that they've got that. They're prepared to have a go. They're prepared to take the risk. And there's nothing like having a failure to teach you some really yeah. important stuff as well. We all know that.
2: And so like now when when you're, you've moved on from Innocent and you're... I guess you're looking, you're investing in, in other things. Innocent seemed to me, the great culture seemed to propel you on to greater things and, and help it keep did, you yeah. going. It seemed like an energising force. So you're investing now. Do you look to see whether you can perceive a strong culture or do you look at good business ideas and think, are going to actually give
1: direction about culture? Well certainly when we're investing the thing that we're spending most time thinking about is the nature of the founding team. Firstly we prefer if it is a team than just an individual because we're big believers in the power of collaboration and it is an extremely rare individual that has everything it requires to be a successful entrepreneur in one person. So we prefer teams. Our belief is this that it's the single biggest determinant of success the quality of that founding team. Do they have a shared set of values and vision but do they have complementary skills that all lend themselves well to the nature of of the opportunity they're going after what we haven't and it's a it's a, it's a current work stream at Jam like we haven't found yet the equivalent of getting someone to do a bit of the work that we had it innocent for testing mm. whether they're going to be good at the job we're still just caught in pitches which are essentially interviews where you can get really excited by someone who might speak particularly confidently and have a sort of whizzy presentation to show you which isn't again a good precursor to determine whether it's going to be successful or not but you can't help your just emotions take over you start getting excited because they know what they're doing in terms of mm. Of giving it the sell, so we're trying to find what's the equivalent of setting them a work challenge. Find out are they actually good at what they need to be good at. So there is this thing of we know this much: it's about psychology. It's about being able to spot the nature of people, their brain, how they work, how they think. That's what you need to be good at. In terms of specifically then the wider culture, it's just a small point, but we would never invest without going to check their office. You just find some stuff out. What's the vibe like? Come oh on, what what sort of things you notice? You notice are people engaged? Right? Are they right. working hard? Are they looking upbeat? Are they being treated badly? Are they all like just shoved in a dark, dank corner somewhere? Is it hierarchical or is it you just... I can't tell you there's a a science to it because of course there isn't. But it's never a neutral experience of trying to get a sense of it. Because that's all, I guess, investing. You're only ever really trying to get a sense of things to give you a better chance of making the right call. It's a you're really trying to predict the future. And that's a mugs game. It's all gambling at the end of the day. But yeah, we're big believers in really investigate the founding team, speak to all their friends and their colleagues and their ex-bosses and all that kind of stuff, spend as much time with them as possible, ask them about each other. We had a great one just last week where we said, so how does it work? And there's three of them. Go, one guy goes, well, I see like I'm the one in the middle and keep these two sort of, and the other guy goes, no, I'm the one in the middle and keep you two. So you know, you just sort of, <laughs> have they worked out their own sort of dynamic yet? Yeah. Really important. We've invested in two businesses out of 30, so it's not big, but fundamental happened within a month Both of those businesses, the founders had completely fallen out to the point where they're trying to sue each other. Absolute, like, playground, pulling hair, name calling. Insane. But they masked it. They turned up to the meetings. They were like, they came across so well wow. in an interview. That's our fault. We didn't do enough digging around to see you got to get beyond the facade. One of the ways you get beyond the facade is getting into their office. Yeah. Speak to some people that aren't in charge. Because again, this is the other thing you know about businesses. It's never the people at the top taking the credit that do all the work. It's just the insanity You're the founder. I was the founder. So, you know, I, I become the lightning rod publicly for the credit. But there was 300 people doing the work, most of whom were smarter and working harder than I Was you do a lot better by speaking to the people actually doing the job? How's it going? How are they regarded? What? When did they last get given some feedback? What products you working on that you're excited by? Just intel.
2: Yeah, sort of the intangibles, but the stuff you detect face to face, I guess.
1: Yeah, because of course the fundamental truth is in a pitch they're pitching. It's not. It's not an objective transferring of information. So you've got to try and find your way to just get to the actual information and data as best as you can, rather than just be on the receiving end of a pre prepared pitch.
2: So, so look, you've just done a, a new book, which is this fabulous series of you chatting to, I mean, a remarkable list of really names. Really remarkable people, yeah. <laughs> was it hard? I mean, like a remarkable list of names, each of them bestowing one big nugget of advice. What? And and so what were your big takeaways from that? Well, I have to say, for me personally, it
1: was an incredible project to be part of, because as you know, it's going around speaking to some of the most remarkable people in the world and asking them to reflect on their life and times and stand behind a single piece of advice, which Above all else they hold to be the most important and be the most true and we deliberately set it up to have the widest possible set of human experiences so really big names from politics such as Bill Clinton or Mike Bloomberg in business or Judy Dench from the arts or I just interviewed the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement but also people that have been through really distressing experiences an Afghan vet that had three of his limbs blown off a concert pianist that survived sexual abuse as a child an Auschwitz survivor but then Simon Cowell entertaining the nation you know so people have been through the best of times the worst of times I like people. I, I love humans. I think we're great. We're really, 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 really nice as a species, apart from the crazy shit we sometimes do. But meeting all these people and realising, God, they're really nice. That was lovely. Even these people, that some of the most famous people in the world, the most powerful people in the world, they're dead nice. And so, I just found that brilliant. And then, I've just been given 60 of the best pieces of advice I could ever wish to hear, and hearing it direct from the horse's mouth It's brilliant. And for me, there's a there's a reason for the book. It's because my life turned on a sixpence when I was given a couple of amazing bits of advice I was fortunate enough to have been in a room with some smart people that gave me some good advice but I know that's a massive advantage not everyone gets to be in the room with smart people giving good advice not everyone has access to good role models so the spirit of the book is to try and capture the wisdom of the age make it available to everyone and all authors profits go to fund social mentoring and inclusion charities across the world. So hopefully it it all sort of, the circle completes itself. I was
2: reading through it on a a train journey on Friday. As I was flicking through I was astonished. I mean, the collection, it's not only an immensely diverse list of people, but this just, I mean, like you say, Bill Clinton's in there. The gravitas of a lot of the people you spoke to is remarkable. But of all the people you spoke to, was there there one bit of advice that stuck with you the most? It's a tough one because actually advice is
1: like, advice isn't sort of typically universally applicable. What's great is about devices, but it can just lie there inert earth if it's not the thing that's right for you. But you pick up stuff and you go, that actually, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going It's like, you know, when you're playing those computer games, you pick up a sword or a, a shield. Or whatever. You pick up what, what's ever useful to you. The bit that I specifically loved, there's a relationship therapist called Esther Perel in it. She's the number one expert in the world globally about relationships. Everything from sexual relationships but to loving relationships to family relationships. And she just said this very simple thing, which I'm sure as soon as you hear it, you'll know to be true. But wow, I found it like profoundly beautiful in its simplicity. She just said, we all want the best quality of life for ourselves. Of course we do. The thing we may not understand is the single biggest determinant of our quality of life is the quality of our relationships with our friends and our family. And if you take that insight and then make it then the main thing in your life to try and serve and do what's best for the quality of your relationships with your friends and your family, because let's face it, we're probably not putting that as our first port of call. We're probably thinking about how do do, do I get the car or or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. Or work deadline which i get i get there's the pressure we've all got those but it's like just long-term be thinking about my quality of life how much i enjoy my life is going to be determined by the quality of my relationship my friends and family which antipathy tends to be about thinking how can i help them and i love that a mm. really simple but profound thing and mm. i really have since listening to her me going you know what? That makes total sense to me. Now you've, I didn't think of it myself, but now you've said that it makes total sense. So I have really, since she told me that, I have just increased the amount of time. I, I invest in my friends and my family and trying to be like a decent son, brother, friend, mate, boyfriend, father. And I, I have, I swear, man, I, I'm not saying it's related, but I think it is. I've genuinely never been happier. I feel like most days I'm sort of approaching the outer edges of human happiness. I mean... And I think
2: I think it's that. I think it's because I listened to her advice. It's funny that it's because uh, along the course of, I checked to a happiness expert, I think in March or something, and he said exactly the same. He said, yeah. you know, like happiness is directly, your own happiness is directly related to the happiness of your friends and like, you know, sort of, they're all interconnected and investing more time in your friends directly correlates to happiness.
1: I saw, the, I, I, you know, one of the people I met for the book was the Dalai Lama. Yeah, that's right. Incredible. That's a real life moment, right? I mean, Unbelievable. Got Dalai Lama next to Bill Gates and the founder of Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's a real... Yeah. But he said, why are we all here? That question, why are we all here? To help each other. And end of, end of teaching. I just love that. Why are we all here? To help each other. We'll leave on the Dalai Lama. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, we didn't even say the name. Go, 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 go. If I could tell you just one thing. Available good. in all good bookshops. <laughs> Thank an you. ideal Christmas present. And all
2: for charity. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. So like I say, Richard's book, if I could tell you just one thing, it's got some some very surprising people in there. I mean, you know, along the way, it's got uh, Johnny Ive, Andy Murray, Bill Clinton, Alan de Baton, fan of the show. Uh, We mentioned the Dalai Lama, not a listener, but uh, loads of people there. So uh, definitely worth checking out that book. And it's a a really it's a really sort of easy toilet book. You allowed to say that? A really easy book for browsing when you've got just one or two minutes to spare. Uh, Richard's at book's out now. Look out for the short episodes coming to your podcast over the next week or so. Always look forward to hearing from you. You can tweet us if you search for our Twitter handle, which is eat, sleep, Work Repeat. See you next time.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.